We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians this morning, if you would like to turn there. Continuing our synthetic series through the 13 epistles of Paul, we're in 2 Thessalonians. Last week we went over 1 Thessalonians, um, written about 50-51 AD, more than likely Paul's second epistle. So now we're here in 2 Thessalonians. This book was written, this letter was written um, pretty much within a year, probably 12 months within the first. So we're looking at about 52 AD. It's probably Paul's third epistle. The structure of the letter this morning is going to be the foundation of our study. Last week, the foundation was on faith, love, and hope. This week in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, correction concerning persecution. Chapter 2 is going to be correction concerning prophecy. And chapter 3 is going to be correction concerning practice. So persecution, prophecy, and practice. And it's interesting because 2 Thessalonians being only three chapters long, it's easy to divide this up. And with a synthetic study, it's not going to be so much into all the details. It's going to be an overview, but it's not going to be superficial where we're not getting into anything, but just get the overall um, concept and idea of what Paul was addressing here. So Paul wrote to encourage the Thessalonian believers to continue to persevere in the face of continuing persecution. We see that in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he wants to clarify the order of events preceding the day of the Lord in order to correct false teaching about end times events. And from last week with 1 Thessalonians, we saw that they believed that they were in the day of the Lord. Paul mentions that again here in 2 Thessalonians. He's going to mention the day of the Lord. We're going to take a look and see what he's talking about with that. Finally, he taught the church how to deal with lazy Christians in their midst, and that's in chapter 3. So we're going to take a look at C in Christian conduct, correction concerning practice. So in 2 Thessalonians, we're just going to read the first section here. Um, chapter 1, let's read verses 4 through 12. So in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith and power so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to verse 4 here. Let's break this down a little bit. Paul says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. 
So what Paul is saying here is Paul explaining the worthiness of suffering for Christ demonstrates the believer's worthiness to participate in the kingdom. So when we say the kingdom of God, what are we referring to? It's a very intense topic. If you study and you go through the scriptures, you'll actually see five different usages for kingdom of God. We say kingdom of God, we assume we know what we're talking about, and in an ideal sense, yes, it is heaven, but it is more than just heaven. We see in the order of events, Revelation chapter 20, the thousand years of peace, the millennial reign, the literal kingdom of God on earth when Jesus comes back and sets up his throne on earth and rules for a thousand years. Satan is bound for this time. This is the millennial kingdom or the messianic reign of Christ, prophesied all in the Old Testament, being fulfilled in Revelation chapter 20. We as saints will have our glorified bodies during this time. And we literally will be reigning and ruling with Christ for a thousand years on earth. So when we hear about the kingdom of God, this is the preamble, kind of like the kickoff on um, a Sunday afternoon Packer game, the kickoff, the preamble, the millennial reign, literally ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years on earth. So when we say kingdom of God, yes, it can mean it is the literal kingdom, but you can also think of it as heaven. But either way, what Paul is doing here is he's um, connecting two concepts together. Suffering, the worthiness of suffering now well, um, it's not going to earn us this, but what it is, it's the process by which we enter into the Messianic kingdom and rule with Christ. So taking a look then at persevering in afflictions. In Romans, Paul talks about being baptized unto Jesus' death, being identified with Jesus' death, self-denial and suffering, the proper mindset with these two concepts. Here's an analogy. A hot fire burning gold separates the gold from the dross and reveals the gold to be what it actually is. So gold, with all of its impurities, once it's tested by hot fire, all of those impurities drain off and what we are left with is pure gold. And in sufferings and in persecutions in this life, this is exactly what the Lord is doing with us. So if we're going to identify ourselves with Christ, we identify ourselves with his death with his suffering and with his burial, and also with his resurrection and newness of life. So this life, what the Lord is doing through these trials is he's burning off those impurities that we all have, that sinful nature, and he's purifying us. So when we enter into the messianic reign with Christ and we enter into heaven with him, we are as complete as we possibly can be in Christ. So in the same way, the fire of trials can separate the Christian from the unsaved and show the Christian to be who he actually is. We are what we are as Christians by the grace of God. This isn't a works-based salvation. The grace of God is what saves us. The grace of God is what enables us to do these things that we do. To suffer as Christians, it's by the grace of God. We don't see it that way, especially in our culture today. What do we see? Abundance, you know, binge success upon success. If somebody's suffering or if somebody's not doing so well, there's something wrong. That person doesn't have all their ducks in a row. That person, in this economy and in this culture, there's no way somebody should be suffering. Well, in this culture and in this society that's so affluent, God can easily pierce through that and cause a trial to come our way, cause something to happen to us, that what the Lord is doing is he sees something in our hearts that he wants to purify, he wants to get that out. So we may have our goals in mind, 
We may have our plan of life already outlined, and it just doesn't go that way. You know, we had goals. We have ambitions. We wanted to go this direction, but the circumstances in life brought us this way. Why is that? Well, God has his hand on the believer, and he's purifying that dross so we become pure gold in Christ. It's God's grace that qualifies a person for millennial service. So God's grace enters us into the kingdom. Suffering is the process by which we enter it. Suffering, if properly responded to, only exposes the quality of a person from whom God's grace is transforming. Let's use an analogy here. Um, past, was it the past week or two? Uh, Muhammad Ali just passed away. And if you've watched any of his old boxing fights, because the heavyweight division back in the 70s was is just, they were the best. It was really interesting. I wasn't alive then, but I can watch old footage. And Ali during the 60s was incredibly athletic, wouldn't get hit, would move in and out pretty much. He got his license suspended for three years, I think it was, for not going to Vietnam. Comes back three, three years later, he wasn't as athletic. He wasn't as sharp. He wasn't as fast. So what ended up happening, in order for him to win matches, he had to take a beating and allow the guy to punch himself out. And you guys remember the rumble in the jungle with George Foreman. He'd punch himself out, the opponent would, to the point where then Ali would turn around and the guy was tired and he would beat him. That process that Ali went through in those fights during the 70s when he was, his skills were eroding, he loved it. I don't know why, but you watch his interviews and you watch those fights. He just absolutely loved getting in the ring. He loved trading punishment. And one of his attributes was he could take more punishment than his opponent, and he would wear him down, and he would eventually win the fight. But what you see in the heart of a champion, using a boxing analogy, is when the times get tough, when you're in what they call a gut check, when it's nothing but pure ambition and pure drive that gets you from point A to point B. When all of your skills, they're not the same, or they're not there, or they're eroded, and all you left have left is your heart. I think the Lord brings us into these circumstances in life where our intellect and our ability to think and our ability to maneuver and to manipulate and try to steer the ship the best we can, we don't have those abilities anymore and we're just left with our heart exposed. And that's all we have left. And all we can do is rely upon the Lord and his grace and his strength to get us through something. That's when that dross gets taken off of our heart. That's when the flames of fire come and purify us. When there are no more angles to take, we have to face something head-on and allow the Lord to take us through the trial by faith, not having any abilities from ourselves to get us through the trial. And this is what the Thessalonians were facing. Sometimes we just don't have the answer and we have to pray to the Lord and he takes us through it. But it's that time, at that time when we are at our weakest is when we are being purified the most. But our world, the system, it's all about affluency. It's all about progress. It's all about possessions and materialism. And if the Christian, standing back and looking, sees the world, and the world turn around looking back at the Christian, they're like, what's going on here? We have to realize it's the Lord taking us through these trials and taking us through these processes. So continuing on this concept, look at verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction, those who afflict you. Sometimes when we preach or witness, teach the word, we emphasize God's love. 
but we forget to enter and emphasize God's justice. God's love gets overemphasized, not that you can't overemphasize it, but a lot of times we forget God's judgment is just as equal as his love. See, love is a positive thing. We can speak about that. doesn't offend anybody. But once we go over to the judgment side of God, that's when things get a little bit difficult. But here, notice what it says. It's only just for God to do this. So if God does not judge humanity for their sin and rebellion, God would be unjust or God would be immoral. So when sin happens, when somebody lives a lifestyle contrary to that which God has prescribed us to live. When they live contrary to it, that's sin. And it has to be judged. If God does not judge sin, he is immoral. He has to do this. So then why is the Christian able to get away, not so much in a sense of get away, but be forgiven now? Where is the justice? It was placed upon Christ on the cross. Justice had to be paid. That's why Jesus had to die, for justice. But if the individual, seeing Jesus on that cross, rejects that and goes his own way, he has to be judged for this. So God's love and grace go hand in hand with judgment and condemnation. And we're seeing this here now. The scales of justice, and we'll get into that in a little bit, what about the sinful world that seems to be just getting along just fine, just mocking God, having nothing to do with him? What about those people over there? And then you have the Christian over here who's suffering, who's going through these trials. God, where is the justice? And we'll get into that. But in verse 7, it says, To give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So while Paul is speaking about the present circumstances the Thessalonians were dealing with and his emphasis is upon the future judgment of the world system and all mankind. We see that here in verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So notice what we're seeing here. No knowledge of God equals no obedience of God. No relationship with the Lord. Not just head knowledge, but relationship. No relationship to the Lord will equal no obedience to his word. They go hand in hand, and this is what's being judged. And here's the consequence in verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The question is often asked, how can God be so cruel? How can a loving God send somebody to hell? You hear that question? Anybody ever confront you with that question? How are you going to answer that question? Well, here's the answer. Those who reject Christ will receive exactly what they want. People go to hell because they want to. If you don't want to serve Christ now, if you don't want a relationship with him now, then for all eternity, you will be eternally separate from him. That's what you want now. That's where you're going to go. So God, people see God as this moral monster who's, if he's so loving and if he's so caring, why does he send people to hell? It's because of justice. He's a, you, want, you, don't, you don't want a relationship. You don't want to confess your sin. You don't want to acknowledge what you've done. You don't want to acknowledge your transgressions with God. Fine, so be it. That's the judgment that's placed upon each individual who rejects him. So people go to hell because they want to, not because God is some unjust moral monster who's just bringing down vengeance on humanity. It's the exact opposite. If you don't want a relationship with the Lord now, and if you don't want to be obedient to him now, then why would you want that 
in the life to come. You're not living the lifestyle here and now for that. So continuing on this then, evening the scales of justice, the Christian who's suffering persecution now as opposed to the world that seems to be so affluent and so successful, look at verse 10. It says, when he comes, this is referring to the second coming of Christ, to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end and also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith and power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. So when all is said and done, when Jesus comes back to tip the scales of justice back into our favor, those who are saved, those who have a relationship with the Lord, those who have been obedient to God, will glorify God for who he is for all eternity. And those who reject him will be separated from God for all eternity. So justice is coming. This is a process. We see it in scripture. We see Paul prophesying about these end times events. It's going to be coming. So what we're to be doing now as Christians is to maintain as we go through this process in life. So that was the first part, correction and persecution. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 we're now going to get into correction in end times events. Let's read verses 1 through 12. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message or a letter as it from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things, and you, now, and you know what restrains him now, so that in, his, in this, in his time, he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness." Go to verse 1 here. We'll see what Paul is referring to. It says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. It's interesting here in verse 1. I believe you can take that word and and separate the rapture from the second coming. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, referring to the second coming when he comes to earth with his saints, and then the word, and our gathering together unto him is the rapture of the church that precedes the day of the Lord. I, see, I, I believe we see two here. The rapture being the second one, 
The first one being Jesus' second coming to earth during Armageddon. Verse 2, that you will not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord, we got into this last week, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Thessalonian church thought that they were in the day of the Lord. They were worried about this. Paul wrote that letter saying, no need that we even write to you, the day of the Lord is not here. Chapter 4 described the chronological event that the rapture of the church, Jesus coming in the air to take his church home, happens prior to the day of the Lord. Here again in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he's re-emphasizing this and he's teaching this yet again. There was confusion within the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonians were experiencing intense persecution. Because of this, they believed that they were in this day of the Lord. Now, as we talked about last week, the day of the Lord, what is this? It's a technical term, meaning every time you see the day of the Lord, it means the same thing. The day of the Lord is a period of both judgment and blessings, which starts with the revealing of the Antichrist. We'll get get to that in a second. So the starting point of the day of the Lord is when the Antichrist is revealed, and it ends after the millennial reign of Christ when the old earth is destroyed and we inherit the new earth. Let's take a look at that event. If you guys would turn with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be in verse 10. 2 Peter 3.10 is going to go over the fact, the very last event that occurs in, during this day of the Lord If you go through Zephaniah chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 30, you go through the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is used many times. We go into the New Testament and we see it as well. So when we take that phrase, the day of the Lord, and we go through the scriptures and we read and take every detail that it talks about, what we're seeing is it starts with the revealing of the Antichrist and it ends at the end of the millennial reign. So what Peter's going to talk about here is the old earth and the old heavens being done away with during the day of the Lord. So verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Verse 13, the new heavens and the new earth. If you go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you're going to see the fulfillment of that. Revelation 20, the millennial reign, it ends, this event occurs. Revelation 21 and 22, we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. So because of the persecution the Thessalonians were experiencing, they thought they were in this period of time. Paul is writing to inform them that this isn't the case, you are not in the day of the Lord yet. So look at verse 3, go back to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 3. It says, Let no one in any way deceive you. 
and it's referring to the day of the Lord, for it will not come unless apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who's the man of lawlessness? It's the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 6, you see the rider on the white horse with a bow, takes peace from the earth. It's a reference to the Antichrist. So Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 20 encompasses the day of the Lord. This is how you can put these events together when you take apart prophecy and fit it together chronologically. Let's talk about apostasy here for a second. Apostasy is defiance of established system and authority, rebellion, abandonment, breach of faith. Paul's thought is that in the last times, there will be an outstanding manifestation of the powers of evil arrayed against God. Now, do we see that today? Absolutely, we do. 20th century, the last century, 1900 to 2000. We see liberal theology. Liberal theology crippled the mainline denominations. Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Baptist, any other ones that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Liberal pastors went into these churches and converted the churches from within. Liberal theologians and professors went into the seminaries and converted the professors and the students from within. So from the seminaries taken over by liberal theology to the churches taken over by liberal theology, during the 20th century there was a revolution of modernism or liberal theology that took over the entire church system and denominations. What is liberal theology? It's the humanist interpretation of scripture. Anti-supernatural. Jesus didn't literally historically rise from the dead. That's just... Uh, uh, an, a romantic or an upper story um, writing that we all can relate to. We all rise from the dead. We all become born again as we gain in knowledge and we grow in experience in life. See how they take Christian terminology that are, that's biblical and they turn it into some humanistic form of interpretation and it's not biblical at all. They use our Bible, they use our terminology, but they take the definitions of it and they take the theology of it and they twist it. And this entered into every mainline denomination in Christianity during the 20th century. It's subjective teaching. It's allegorical teaching. Rather than a literal Jesus and a literal crucifixion and a literal resurrection and a literal ascension, all of its figures of speech, they interpret it metaphorically. What does it mean to you? They deny inspiration. They deny the historicity of Christ. They redefine our terminology. And what did it result into? Okay, so the liberals took over the seminaries. The liberals took over the mainline denominations. Christians stepped back during the 1950s and 1960s when this revolution was already pretty much complete. And we kind of, what we see now is evangelical, fundamental Christianity. You no longer can be a specific denomination and just automatically assume that that, person, that person's fundamental very much could be liberal. You don't know anymore. So now we got categorized as evangelical Christianity, fundamental Christianity. Now, from the 50s to the 60s till today, we have modernism and postmodernism growing into our culture. Now the evangelical church itself is being infiltrated by postmodernism. 
It's crippling the evangelical community now to the point where it's hard to even define what an evangelical is anymore. You can't do it. Just like you can't define what a Methodist is anymore, or what a Lutheran is anymore, or what a Baptist. There's so many branches and and differences within it because of liberal theology and because of postmodernism. But what we're seeing in the shift in the church culture over the past 150 years is apostasy. Away from the literal teaching of the word, away from the literal teaching and the historical events of Jesus Christ, being reinterpreted subjectively, metaphorically, denying God, denying the Lord who bought them. I mean, I think Paul even speaks about that in, in, in either in Timothy or Thessalonians. But what we're seeing here now, since 2007, here's a statistic. Church attendance has dropped 8% since 2007. Going to church, what is this? People hear of going, what, what comes to your mind when you hear going to church? If you say that to an elderly person today, they think of one thing. If you say it to a person my age, they think of another thing. If you say it to somebody who's 10 years old today, they think of another thing. What does it mean? What is going to church? It's more than just the building with the steeple on it. It's more than just going there and sitting down, singing some songs, saying hi to some people and leaving. It's much more than that. What do we mean as biblical Christians of going to church? It's hearing the gospel. It's learning the correct understanding of who God is. It's learning the correct understanding of who man is. Fellowship with other believers, worshiping God, learning morality, ethics, right from wrong, and learning the proper foundation for all moral choices. So it's not just walking into a building. It's not just getting up on Sunday morning, putting on some clean, nice clothes, and doing what you think makes God pleasing by going to church and then leaving. You've done your deed for the week. It has nothing to do with that. But that's the way the world thinks of going to church. It's like, okay, we got to suck our stomachs in for an hour and a half and endure this church service, and then we can go back to our lifestyles, and when we get out, this somehow pleases God, or this somehow pleases our parents, or it pleases our family. Therefore, we do it, and we just go on with our daily lives after that. That's not what church is. It's all about fellowship. It's all about transformation and the power of the Holy Spirit, learning morality, learning ethics, learning the foundation of who God is, what, what, what is right and what is wrong. So what do the younger think, generations think church is? A big echoing building, boring, archaic, antiquated, not relevant for today, something that you do during Christmas and Easter. So there's the dichotomy. This is where our culture's at today. Here's another statistic. 36% of millennials, and what's a millennial? A person reaching adulthood around the age, or around the year 2000. So I guess that would be me. Year 2000, I was 20. Wouldn't call myself an adult yet, but you know, I was 20 years old during that time. That's what a millennial is. 36% of millennials consider themselves to have no religious affiliation whatsoever. So one third of people my age will check none for the box of religion. What's going to happen during the next generation? Is that going to go to 50%? What's going to happen to the generation of that? Is it going to go to 75%? I don't know. But we have to understand the culture that we live in and how do we evangelize them. People think of church. They think of old, archaic, not relevant for today. So how do we evangelize the world? We, make sure we, we press into those points, into those questions, into those areas where people are confused. And people are most confused today as to the foundation of right and wrong. Postmodernism, the culture that we live in today, is skeptical about everything. They're skeptical about everything because they don't have a standard by which to measure things to. We have the word of God. We know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here's the standard. God has spoken. This is what's right. 
This is what's wrong. Take God out of society, you no longer have a standard, which is why we have a world in so much confusion. So if we're going to evangelize the culture today, we start right there with the foundation. Who is God? Who is man? Going back to the very basics and understanding these things. So going back to apostasy then, what is Paul saying here when he speaks of apostasy? Paul's referring to the departure from the Christian faith of professing but not genuine Christians. Soon after the rapture, at the beginning of the day of the Lord, others see no connection. So some people think that the church is going to be raptured, no more Christian presence on the face of the earth at all. Extreme apostasy will follow right into the day of the Lord. That's very viable. That very well could be the way it goes. Others don't see a connection between the rapture and the apostasy at all. It's just going to happen and then the rapture occurs. Either way, this is not the same apostasy that the other apostles wrote about. This apostasy was still yet future. And I personally believe, not getting too deep into the end times right now, but with Israel being back in the land and all of these things being set, that this apostasy that we're seeing right now is going to lead us into the day of the Lord. Not trying to date set or anything like that, but I think we're seeing these steps, we're seeing this process unfolding right before us today in our eyes, exactly what the Bible was talking about 2,000 years ago. So look at verse 4 then. We're going to get into the man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is a specific event. It's what's known as the abomination of desolation. It's when the Antichrist, during the middle of the seven years of tribulation, will go into the temple that is not yet built but futurely will be, will sit down in that temple and declare himself to be God. The seven years of tribulation, right in that middle point, right in that three and a half year point, is when the Antichrist does this. I'll read this verse to you. Revelation 12, 6. Speaking of the Antichrist, it says, He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So Paul's writing about this event here to 2 Thessalonians. John writes about this event in Revelation about 40 years later. What's interesting is this event that Paul is speaking of, that John speaks of in Revelation, was also written down by Daniel 500 years before Jesus. So 500 years before Christ, Daniel 12:11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So Daniel, 500 years before Christ, speaking of this event when the Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. Fast forward 500 years, we see Paul speaking about it. We see John speaking about it in Revelation. Jesus himself also spoke of this event. I'll read this to you. Matthew 24, 15. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now verse 16, he's talking to Israel. He's saying, Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Whoever is on his housetop, do not go down to get the things out of the house. Who is ever in the field must not turn back. For there will be great tribulation such as never occurred since the beginning of the world, nor ever will be. So the seven years of tribulation, right in the midst point, three and a half years in, the Antichrist goes into the temple, declares himself to be God. He starts to enforce the mark of the beast on everybody's hands. Two-thirds of the Jews will be executed during this time. There's going to be intense 
persecution on the Jews. Two-thirds will be killed. And the climax of this event is Armageddon when Jesus comes back, Revelation chapter 19. So go in verse 5 of um, 2 Thessalonians. It says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So all of these things that we're covering this morning, Paul crammed this all into about a three-week period of time. So you can understand their confusion, which is why he wrote 1 Thessalonians. And now here again in 2 Thessalonians, he's correcting their misunderstanding of end times event. That's why he's writing both of this in both letters. He was with them for three weeks. It's quite a crash course. Verse 6, And you know that what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains now will do so until he is taken out of the way. What are we seeing here? Who is the restrainer? Some people think that this is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is lifted up and the church is taken out, that restraining force is taken away from the earth. Apostasy, the Antichrist comes in. It's very possible. Another possibility is the restraining force is government. Going back to Genesis chapter 9, we see the Noahic covenant. God sets up government structures. Government are what enforces policies on earth. So when the government now allows the Antichrist to come onto the scene, this is just another interpretation. Both are viable. Not going to get too much into that right now. But the restraining force could either be government, government or the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And we see that in Revelation chapter 19. So what we're seeing here now, during the day of the Lord, end times judgment, the scales of justice, they're going to be equaled. We suffer now. We go through trials and tribulations now, knowing that there will be a point in time where we will rule and reign with him. So during this day of the Lord, the earth dwellers are judged, Satan is dwell, judged, the Antichrist is judged, all the rest thrown into Gehenna. All of this happens during this time. Finally then, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll finish on this. We're going to go over one verse. So go to chapter 3, verse 13, and we'll close in this. And it says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So apparently some Thessalonians had become lazy. Probably due to the concept that Jesus was coming back soon. Probably due to the concept, I don't know, maybe what's the point? We're all being persecuted. I, what's, you know, they were becoming lazy. And Paul is stressing in verse 13, do not become weary of doing good. How about in today's setting? What would cause a Christian to become weary of doing good? If we think about this in our life. Negativity, bitterness, becoming busy, too busy, too preoccupied with things so our focus is off the Lord. Maybe we see, we take a look at the world and we see the scales of justice tipped in such a negative way that we just step back and think, all right, God, I don't understand what's going on. I'm just going to step back from all of this. I don't know what to do. Paul tells us in many places in the New Testament to do what? To give thanks in all things. Many Christians try to mask their discomfort or their frustration, or they're being disgruntled with a plastic smile. During the week, they're going through it. It's rough. They're suffering. There's things that they'd like to talk about. They're becoming depressed. They're becoming bitter. They come to church on Sunday morning. They smile, leave church, and go right back into that world system again of being disgruntled and discomfort. There's nothing wrong with being honest about what our emotions are. There's nothing wrong with confessing that talking about that. I actually recommend doing that with the purpose of getting it out so it can be corrected. 
but what we do is we suppress it, we sweep it under the rug, and we walk around with the plastic smile that everything's okay, and it's not. And what Paul is saying here is the outward appearance, you know, becoming, in a sense, weary of doing good, becoming bogged down. We always have Romans 8.28 to go back to. So we know that God calls us all things to work together. Those who love God through those who are called according to his purpose. God has, is working all things into our favor. No matter if something positive or negative happens in our life, even though we don't understand how all the pieces fit together, we go by faith knowing that in this abnormal, chaotic, unjust, sinful culture that we live in, God has a purpose, God has a plan. There is no such thing as purposeless evil, even though we don't see how all the pieces fit together. Also knowing that Christ has redeemed us out of this world, that we will rule and reign with him in the future, and he has destined us for eternity with him. What ends up happening is when we lack proper contentment, we forget that God is God. Being content in whatever situation or scenario that we find ourselves in. Because if we're content, then we're allowing God to be God. If we become uncontent, if we don't like our circumstances, if something in life is bothering us, we take our eyes off the Lord and we try to fix it ourselves. Once our eyes are off the Lord, we fix it on other things analogy I like to use is with Roundup. Last week I sprayed Roundup around my house, around the trees, killed the weeds. A day later, nothing changed. Two days later, a little bit of wilting. Today, they're brown, but they're still standing. Next week, they'll be all dead, right? It's a process. We take our eyes off the Lord. We're all right for a while. Then suddenly depression sets in, and then we get weighed on by more and more and more and more until finally we become weary of doing good. Why? We're not content. We're not thinking thanks in all things. We're wearing that plastic smile. We're not confessing our needs and our sins. We're taking our eyes off the Lord for whatever reason it is, and we're trying to fix the problem ourselves. And when we do that, all of these issues come in. So what Paul is pretty much saying here, the correction for persecution, prophecy, and practice is to realize if we're suffering now, that indicates that we're going to be worthy to enter his kingdom into the future. So let's finish. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have laid out in detail the future events that concern the day of the Lord, that you have not appointed us to wrath. Lord, we thank you for all of these things, and we pray that we do give you thanks in all things, knowing that you work out all things for our good, those who are called according to your purpose. So we want to lift up all of our cares, all of our anxieties, all of our stress. Lord, we don't want to walk around with that plastics. We don't want to become weary of doing good, but we want to stay grounded in you. We want to stay fresh in you in that progressive sanctification, Lord, on a daily basis with that relationship with you, taking off that excess so the pure gold comes out, Lord, fixing our mind on eternal things and not of the temporary here and now. We want to lift up Pastor Landon, Lord, and his family to you. We pray his blessings upon them, and we thank you for all that you've given us and we just pray you bless the fellowship for the rest of this morning, Lord. We all ask this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. Amen.